The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. What do you think? This uh, is the exact same technology? Not the exact same technology, no. Ultimately, I decided to reconceive some of it. I, I, I never liked the way the monitor looked. And then it occurred to me, who needs it? Gentlemen, I am the future of computing, and I would like to present you with Nexum's new Freedom line of display technology. New from Nexum. Freedom is in your future. <laughs> Launch this now. Arc is not gonna last. <laughs> Who said 100% market share wasn't possible, huh? Give me marketing immediately. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, February 9, 2012. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. Oh, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Wow, what a show we're going to have this week. Hard to believe it was a week ago. We just started talking about the whole uh, Caterpillar situation, Robert. Two weeks ago, actually. We talked about it for the past two weeks. And now this is our first show since the bad news came out. Oh, that, that they're left, they've left town. They've all that they're leaving town. That's correct. Yeah. And that's our theme for the day. We can call it Catless Shrugged <laughs> because it has all the parallels of the book, Atlas Shrugged. It's amazing. And uh, we, uh, we could get into that in a lot of detail. But first, I think we have to take care of a lot of business on this and really, you know, there's, there hasn't been a voice for reason in this whole debate. I, I, I'm just amazed at what I'm hearing out there. But in any case, 519-661-3600 is a number you can call if you want to join us in our conversation on this subject or email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. You know, as decades ago, Robert, I said that unions are political organizations that just happen to do a little collective bargaining on the side. And if anything proved that statement, it was what happened in London this past week. Of course, Caterpillar shrugged on Friday last week, announcing that its local plant in the city, Electromotive, would be closing due to the company's inability to reach a deal with the union. <coughs> now, what was really interesting is how this has been covered and reacted to since the event. Because really, it exposes what the whole issue was all about in the first place. This is more than an isolated battle, reads Ian Gillespie's February 4th London Free Press headline. Quote, this is more philosophic than economic, said Tony Bivano, who worked at the EMO plant, or EMD plant, on Oxford Street for 33 years. Long time. This is a philosophical argument to bring wages across North America lower. They, Caterpillar executives, want to turn the clock back 20 years. After 22 years working here, Andrew Stolarski understands that. Stolarski wonders aloud at a globalized world that seems to stomp on ordinary workers in the name of corporate profit. That's why I'm proud that we stood up for this, he says. We were the sacrificial lamb, but we did the right thing. Disgraceful. We stood on principle and what we believe Canada should be, a decent and just society. So, sacrificial lamb, there you go. And they 
did it willingly. That's the whole story that Rand always talks about, is how the people willingly sacrificed themselves. Now, who was this person? One of the workers there. Um, Just a worker? Yes. Oh, I see. Nice of him to include the other 419 employees (laughs) in his sacrifice. Yeah, that's true. But I have to say, you know, good for you, Andrew. You know, you stood on principle and it gave you your vision of a decent and just society. (laughs) But an unemployed one, too. I happen to know a fellow named John Clark who has a union you might want to join now. (laughs) 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 Debated him a lot, too. You know, do you really believe that this stand was based on real principle? On what evidence do you conclude that this principle is a valid one? That's what we have to take a look at today. We want to have that philosophical debate about unions and what they represent and what they're really about. I'm no fan of unions, and I have no pity for what I saw happening out of Electromotive. If they didn't understand the situation they were in, well, that's too bad. But they made the decision, and they had the decision to make. That's the amazing thing. So why should they be now running to us to bail them out and save them from their own consciously made decision. It amazes me. The people they're coming to are worse off than they are when even in their benefit stage, let alone in their employment stage. The people that, you know, this is an elite group of employees, if you want to look at it that way. They're paid more than the average guy out they there. So, Maybe they're I the sh- top 1%, are they? <laughs> That's exactly and the point, You and point, I are the 99%. Right? Now, at the same time that he takes his pride in standing on his principle, he morally condemns the principle, or as he says, a philosophic argument, of Caterpillar, electromotive diesel. So is standing on principle a good thing just because you can call it a principle? Let's be blunt here. The principle on which organized labor operates is the principle of force, of coercion, and monopoly labor, a profoundly anti-labor principle as was demonstrated in London this past week. The principle of capitalism on the other side, and of capitalist activity, is consent. Not just between employer and employee, but also between companies and their customers and everyone else down the chain. So the conflict is really between these two ideas, and between nothing else. And that conflict is the theme of our show today, as we explore both the actual facts and the actual reality of the situation in London. However, it's nice to see the word philosophical surface, since up till this point, I think we were the only people using that word and insisting that that's what the event was about, wouldn't you say? Think they've been listening to us? Because that comment was made the day after our last show. Oh, sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Now, the problem is, of course, that the local media, as I've discovered, seems to be philosophically illiterate utterly disarmed and incapable of reacting to some of the outrageous and blatantly disgusting moral and philosophical statements being made by union reps. The philosophy of these union representatives is known as communism, folks. That's what it's called. You know, it's, it's a fact, which is all about collectivism combined with force. And it is this political ideology that labor movements around the world promote. It is a destructive and suicidal path, and not just for the labor unions, but for everybody who has to deal with them. And even worse, with regard to the media, is its subconscious and irrational moral objection to the principles of capitalism and the people who operate on capitalist principles. All of this they openly admit and proudly admit in their own words, repeated daily in our newscasts, and yet no one objects to these direct assaults on our fundamental rights and freedoms. This is the real nature of the tragedy, and it's why the bad guys get away with so much before they milk their victims dry. And then everybody wonders what went wrong as if they didn't know. Atlas has shrugged in London, Ontario. The theme and plot's the same, only the names of the participants have changed. From the London Free Press, we see the message from 
Billy Ainsworth, president of Progress Rail Services Corporation, in his email to employees at Electromotive in LaGrange, Illinois, regarding our London plant, our former London plant. And it's headed a regrettable decision, quote, our efforts spanning about nine months to negotiate a competitive labor agreement with the Canadian Auto Worker Workers Union were not successful. <coughs> the London plant, primarily because of an antiquated labor contract, faced serious competitive disadvantages. Even though EMC's final officer off- offer addressed these competitive disadvantages, the union would not accept our offer. The gulf between the company and the union was simply too wide to resolve. Market conditions made today's regrettable decision unavoidable. We'll be talking about exactly what all those disadvantages they had are. But the way they tried to adjust for the disadvantages was by offering them the job at the going wage rate. That's the only way they could afford to do it. They're facing a lot of issues in Ontario, as are all manufacturers, especially with the price of electricity going up. Then here is something I that was just stunning to me. This is out of... Um, what newspaper? London Community News, and it's February 4th edition. And Ken Loenza is quoted here under the heading Record Profits for Cat as EMC Lockout Continues by Jonathan Brody. And here's the play, here's the whole issue right here, what Ken Loenza says. Quote, I don't care if they do the work in Woodstock, Ontario, or whether they do it in BC, he said. The fact of the matter is we have clearly said to the company, you own the company, you own the facility, we own the work. If you try to move the work to any place, any other location, we're going to do everything in our power to resist, end quote. So their beef is not about Muncie, Indiana, or foreign investment, or all those causes that the politicians are running to Parliament today about. He wouldn't want the guy across the street to have that job. And that's what it's all about. They're a completely anti-labor mentality. They don't want any competition. They're a complete labor monopoly. And then, thanks to Andrew Coyne in the National Post on February 6th, he put out a, uh, a, a, an editorial that, that sort of straightened out a few of the basic facts. And I'll just highlight those because people have just been smothered with all these non-facts about this whole situation. But here's the situation from Andrew Coyne's February 6th column, uh, headed Caterpillar's EMD facility never really was, quote, our plant, end quote. Well, first of all, he says EMD is not a Canadian company and never was. So anything you hear about Americans taking over, taking jobs, whatever, that's all BS. None of that is true. They have been an American company from day one and continue to be one. Second point, Caterpillar didn't buy the London plant. It bought the whole company, including its LaGrange operations, which is where EMD does its design and engineering work, as well as making parts. It seems unlikely it would have stashed its most valuable intellectual property at a far-off final assembly plant. Incidentally, as the economist Michael Moffat points out, GM moved all final assembly work to London from LaGrange shortly after the free trade agreement agreement went into effect. And so here's the unions going against the free trade agreement, which gave them this job in the <laughs> first place. Right? Ironic. Not ironic. It's consistent. They're destructive. They're always destructive about the things that would benefit them because it's not the benefit of the worker they're concerned with. It's their very self-centered benefit for their group. And their political ideology. And their ideology. And so he says the jobs we're worried about losing to the states are jobs that we took from them. 
And then here's, here's the, even if it were a Canadian company, says, and even if it possessed a Valhalla of patents, it still wouldn't, quote, belong to us. It would belong to them, its Canadian owners. Caterpillar didn't steal the company. It paid for it. And finally, he writes, EMD never received any subsidies from the federal government. Okay, let's get that straight and get all those facts out of the way. So, certainly, this closing of the plant has all the makings of, of the Atlas Shrug book. We bring that up because it's about this very situation. <laughs> it's a fiction story that had a non-fiction book written as an appendix to the fiction story. That's where the book Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal came from, which we uh, recommended last week on the show. I would suggest that those who have been devoting so much time, actually, and effort into trying to bring the book Atlas Shrugged to the screen, maybe they should try a more contemporary story. They wouldn't have too far to look for all the ingredients. All the pieces are right here in London, Ontario. So something to think about. Now, there were two key interviews I heard over the past week on the Caterpillar issue that, that amounted to, you know, to the straw that broke this camel's back. Uh, one was an interview with former MP Glenn Pearson, who made the outrageous assertion that Caterpillar's action was an act of violence, which I publicly responded to immediately following his interview. But unfortunately, time prohibits me from getting into his assertion on today's edition of Just Right. But the other outrageous interview with more revealing comments occurred yesterday between union boss Ken Lowenza and CJBK's Andy Udman. I don't know which two of the two was more infuriating. We will get into the details of that after our first break, but I understand we have a caller on the line. Do we, Ed? Okay. Hey, how's it going? Not too bad. How are you? Good. Um, I just wanted to make a comment about how a whole bunch of people rallied behind the union and protested and had that big day of action in the park. Yes. Um, I'm kind of getting tired of people standing up for factory workers that were making well more than I make. Uh, I'm not part of a union, and they probably make 10 to $11 more than I do, when no one even bothered to protest outside of Queen's Park uh, or make a stink about the smart meters being installed. It's a stupid program that's going to cost the average person a lot of money, and I didn't see anybody protesting about that, but they protest about this garbage. Well, of course, the protest you saw in the park is organized by the people who think they're going to benefit from the protest, which is a bit different. And when you have an organized protest, and that's what these groups do, that's how you get groups in parks. You know, the average person isn't likely to go protest in the park because he's not going to get what he wants out of life that way. Most people understand that. Now, we're going to take a break right now during which we will be hearing from the late Nobel Prize-winning economist Milton Friedman as heard and seen in his award-winning 1980 free-to-choose TV series that aired on PBS at the time. This is from the eighth of ten installments of the series, and it was entitled Who Protects the Worker? And I think you'll understand where Milton Friedman's coming from as we tune into this. The heads of the trade unions that cluster near Capitol Hill know this place very well. This is a room in which hearings were held on the most recent increase in the minimum wage, for example. Who do you suppose testified here in favor of a higher minimum wage rate? Do you suppose it was representatives of the poor people who were supposedly being helped by the bill? <laughs> Not a bit of it. The major people testifying for it were representatives of the American Federation of Labor the AFL-CIO, the major organization of trade unions in this country. There's hardly a member of one of their trade unions 
who works for a wage anywhere close to the minimum wage. Despite all the rhetoric about helping the poor, they were in favor of a higher minimum wage for a very different reason, because it would protect the members of their unions from competition from the lower and lesser skilled people. To see the effects of minimum wage laws in action, go to a place like this, where they sell quick and inexpensive food. You don't need much training to start work on this job. It used to be a traditional training ground for the unskilled. Not any longer, thanks to the minimum wage laws. From a worker's point of view, uh, the people that it was supposed to help, the people in some cases it's hurting the most. Such as minorities, unskilled labor, and young people. Uh, a businessman, especially a small businessman, cannot afford to bring in these people at at the high wa at the higher wage. Uh, they are willing, however, to take apprentices and to train them. It's very difficult to do now uh, under the minimum wage laws. The people who are discriminated against most by a high minimum wage rate are the people with low skills. The more they get paid, the better people can live, whether they're paid in cash or in kind. The staff restaurant in the Department of Housing and Urban Development in Washington, D.C. These people are eating subsidized food. Like all civil servants, federal workers get extremely generous fringe benefits. They have also had an incredible degree of security. It's been almost impossible to fire a civil servant. In January 1975, a typist in the Environmental Protection Agency was so consistently late for work that her supervisors demanded she be fired. It took 19 months to do it. And this incredible 21-foot-long chart lists the steps that had to be gone through to satisfy all the rules and all the management and union agreements. This is really a typical horror story is what it amounts to. And it shows the, it shows the number of steps you got to go through. The process involved the girl's supervisor, his deputy director, his director, his director of personnel operations, the agency's branch chief, an employee relations specialist, a second employee relations specialist, a special office of investigations, and the director of the office of investigations. This veritable telephone directory, need I add, was paid with taxpayers' money. Instead of having a system where who could invent a better protected job than this one before it came to its end? We now have a time certain at which the decision has to be made within the agency. When unions get higher wages for their members by restricting entry into an occupation, those higher wages are at the expense of other workers who find their opportunities reduced. When government pays its employees higher wages, those higher wages are at the expense of the taxpayer. But when workers get higher wages, and more civilized working conditions through the free market. When they get them by firms competing with one another for the best workers, by workers competing with one another for the best jobs, those higher wages are at nobody's expense. They can only come from higher productivity, greater capital investment, more widely diffused skills. The whole pie is bigger. 
there's more for the worker. But there's also more for the employer, the investor, the consumer, and even the taxpayer. That's the way a free market system distributes the fruits of economic progress among all the people. That's the essence of the age of the worker. And that was Milton Friedman from his Free to Choose series done back in 1980, which is amazing, you know. That's one thing everybody ignores is the bigger pie. Everybody thinks we live in the fixed pie. And that really is a large part of the belief of the whole left, isn't it, really? If you think about it, that's what leads them to a lot of their um, misunderstandings. I'd call it myopic. Well, it could be. But it gets worse than that when it gets down into the moral level of the economics and people you know, are, are starting to make moral accusations. And that's what I heard yesterday. Now, I call in on CJBK, you know, a lot with Andy. You Utman, do. <laughs> and uh, we get along great. We argue a lot. We And I like Andy. But I have to tell you, yesterday he just set me off. I didn't get a chance to tell him, so I'll tell him later. But I'm going to say what I heard yesterday. Now, because it's, I thought it was very important. He interviewed um, um, Tim Carey and uh, who was it yesterday? Ken Luenza for about 20 minutes or so. And I, I actually transcribed the important parts of that interview because it's absolutely revealing what these people are saying. But what I thought was really surprising was the way it started off. You know, quote, what is it with these guys at Caterpillar? Asks CJBK Andy Utman yesterday. Can you believe it? These guys are hardly human. Hardly human. Really? And then, then they play a clip that says they were incredibly tough with Tim Carey's voice on it in the background as if that backs up his hardly human opinion or something. Or if that's wrong. Yeah. And he seemed to be totally taken in by C.A.W. Tim Carey's comment that when he looked into the eyes of Caterpillar, they were stone-faced. <laughs> I'm sitting there just, I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. <laughs> Let's okay. see, what kind of a face would this, should they put on? A clown well, face? A happy face? And there's a reason for why they're doing what they're doing. There's a reason for why all of them are doing it, and it's all the government behind it, but that's another issue. Uh, you know, personally, I don't even believe that Tim Carey had the nerve to look into the eyes of the executives of Caterpillar. I really don't. I mean, he's the beggar and thief in the current relationship, and everybody knows it. And I think they're sitting in, fr- in, in the boardroom right now, aren't they, as we yes, speak here? I think so, yeah. Trying to work out their severance pay. So why is anybody sympathizing with him? I, I, like I said on day one, way back when, he should be run out of town for what he's done to everybody, though he doesn't live here anyway. You know... Above all, he and his fellow union compatriots, you know, Ken, Ken Lowenza, Sid Ryan, I mean, these are no friends of the average working man or of the taxpayer or of the consumer or of the community, and ironically, but not least significantly, no friends of their own members either. However, with respect to the latter, they consented to their victimhood. The rest of us did not. You know, most of what people think they know about unions and union history is fiction. We're going to examine some of that later on, aren't we? Uh, But most of what people know about capitalism and communism and the life and death differences between them is also fiction. And fiction in the field of politics and economics we often call propaganda. You know, that's that set of fiction specifically designed to promote one's own interests at the expense of the rightful and legitimate interests of others. That's what I define as greed, was when you're doing that. The union at Caterpillar in London just drowned in its own greed. The union suffered what I think is the just consequences of its philosophy, and they think so too. (laughs) That's the funny part. They just think that what I think would be evil they think is good. And that's the weird part of this whole situation. Tim Carey on Caterpillar says, quote, they're very unemotional employers, very unemotional at the table. They're stone-faced. Well, 
that's good for them and bad for you, Tim. What are you saying? <laughs> that they are in control and you're out of control? That you're motivated by emotion, not by reason? Is that what you're bragging about? I don't get what that's supposed to tell me. And then when Andy Uten was talking to Ken Luenza yesterday, Uten says, uh, did the representatives of Caterpillar live up to their demonized reputation? And Luenza says, well, I think Tim Carey's description is bang on. The reality is, and this is, this is funny, we're there representing human beings, and they're there representing capital. As if... Holy cow. <laughs> human beings can exist without capital. Right, like they're, like they're separate things. He was looking for now, sympathy is what he was yeah, looking for. And he says, oh, and representing executive salary bonuses. Now, of course, the fact is the outrageous exec executive salary bonuses exist mostly in the unionized fields of almost all municipal services, health care services, teaching services, and all the other government monopolies that these guys support. So, so uh, you know, there's uh, two totally different perspectives in that room, says... Uh, um, Luenza, he says, uh, again, he repeats the same thing. He says, uh, we're there for, for human beings and they're there for capital. And then after being asked if the corporation executives were even civil to the union, he replied, and this is important, well, of course they're civil. If anyone acted unprofessional or acted in a way that, quite frankly, is not respectful, then bargaining would be much different. Now, what I learned he means by this is that if at any time Caterpillar can be found to be, quote, bargaining in bad faith, end quote, and a host of other transgressions that are listed in Ontario's labor legislation, then he could get the government involved and get the government to intervene, which is what they're trying to do in any case. And the behaviors we're viewing on both sides of the table are very much the consequence of the existing legislation that actually makes anything called negotiation impossible. So... You know, by definition, to negotiate means to acknowledge that any of the parties in the negotiation are free not to negotiate or negotiate with others. And this free market in labor, wherever unions are involved, simply does not exist. They're this little bubble of communist hybrid and are, and are terrified at the prospect of capitalism knocking at the door. I'll continue more with this conversation of, with Mr. Luenza after we take this break for the bottom of the hour and what you're going to hear as proof that history repeats itself we take you back again to 1979 to the following discussion between at the time tv talk show host phil donahue and none other than ayn rand and the haunting parallel between the moral condemnation of the oil companies that was going on at that time probably still today and the moral condemnation of caterpillar in our time is caused by the same forces at play as we shall hear, both on this side and on the other side of our coming break. Check your premises. Check my premises? Yeah. Check the basic ideas behind any feelings that you might feel at the moment, and you'll see that your feeling comes from your premises, good or bad, but they held subconsciously, they will direct your feelings, and you will think it's innate, right. but it isn't. How do you avoid, let's take your thesis then and accept it now. I'm going to be selfish. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be real talented and charismatic and I'm going to develop a lot of wealth and I'm going to have a lot of money and a lot of banks and pretty soon nobody's going to be able to compete with me because I've already purchased all my competitors. And now I have dictatorial power over people and I can name the price of bacon or price of oil or whatever it is, the commodity I'm selling. You know, I agree with you that you're very talented and you could accomplish a great deal and already have, but you're talking about the impossible. In a free society, Nobody can become a monopolist or a dictator. 
the system itself, the free market, will destroy you. How, how do you explain Mobile Oil, Exxon? How do you explain the prices that they're able to charge for? I think that they're stupid appeasers who get too little and put up with too much. Who, the oil companies? Yes. You, you now, just here you have to let me explain. All right. If President Carter's own policy admits that we need the oil company and that the lack of oil is a serious national crisis right. which might lead to the stoppage of all industry. If that is what we need, by what right can we tell those men go ahead and produce what we want while we're insulting you, while we're trying to control your business and while you're, we're not leaving you that which you produced. Today it's crudely obvious if we need the oil companies we have only one of two choices. Either we produce oil ourselves and no government has ever done it or can do it. Or we have to accept the oil companies terms, pay them whatever they can get. The more they get the more credit to them because that means the country needs it and pays them. They have produced something needed by the people and we must say thank you instead of putting a, or proposing to put a tax on them in order to give the money to the government who does nothing. The government doesn't contribute anything except impediments. All right. But if we allow the oil companies to, to have the power which you say has come to them because we need the oil, it's a question of supply and demand. Yes. So if we approach this laissez-faire, as I think you would like us to, free of government intervention, right. free of all the force and the regulation and the controls which you abhor. Right. All right. Now we've got Mr. Gigantic Oil Baron saying $2.50 a barrel, a, a, a gallon. Now here's what happens. The guy, the blue-collar guy who's trying to make a living and feed his kids can't buy gas for his truck, can't possibly survive in the free marketplace, and suddenly he's on welfare, and he's got to go for a handout, another feature of government that you abhor. You can't have it both ways. But all this is economic fallacies. To begin with, nobody in a free society, now we're talking about the free market, yeah. in which the government doesn't interfere, nobody can become a monopolist. All monopolies are created by a special privilege for government. It's only by an act of government that you can keep competitors out of your field. Therefore, you couldn't become that kind of monopoly. The power you hold as an industrialist is not the power to use force. It's the power of producing something of value. That people want. And it's the people who literally control you because Every purchase is a vote in the favor of some businessmen and in a way against others. It's the public who decides what they want to buy and what they pass up. If, using your examples, you became this powerful tycoon economically, but you cannot force anybody to deal with you and you cannot force competitors out of your field, then every smaller man would be in that field because you would have established a price way above the market. You might last a month if that. So in other words, if I tried to be Mr. Big and charge outrageously high prices for, for gasoline, broke. I would go broke in your view because in your 
leave them alone and let competition handle it approach to civilization, somebody with a smarter, with a better mousetrap, pardon my mixed metaphor. No, that's a very good one. All right, would come along and undercut me. That's right. Sell at a cheaper price. But isn't just my view. You know what I'll do? I'll buy him up the minute I see this bird. I'll buy him. I'll own him and on Tuesday. And where will you get your money when you're not I'm already allowed... holding them up for $2.50 a gallon. But they're not paying you. You say they're all going out well, of business. They've got to get to work. We're married to a petroleum uh, civilization. All right. no way to... This has been done, you know. It isn't incidentally just my view. That is history. There are people who have tried to corner the market repeatedly, right. and the result was that they went broke. Let me see if I understand you now. How do you see if this has got it? You're saying, in effect, that the oil companies have this power because we gave it to them. We gave it to them with our large cars that need a lot of gasoline. We gave, them, we gave it to them with, with our wasteful practices of energy. We have such a tremendous demand and need and reliance on oil that we, in effect, have given the people who make, who produce the oil, the power over us. No. <laughs> tell me, tell me how, where that's wrong. Because the oil producers are not the only people whom we patronize, and not the only people who supply a need. The, even if, which I say if, it never happens, but let's suppose one oil man cornered the market, he has competition from every other industry who produce other things which we need. Therefore, we cannot give all the power to one company, even if in a given field we patronize only that company. That company is competing with every other producer. And the moment you charge too much and somebody can give us the same product mm -hmm. uh, at a lower price, he'll you right. out of business. Okay. You realize, of course, that your critics suggest that you're just, that this is a pie in the sky, unpractical notion that you're offering to us, and that it sounds wonderful as you gather with the intellectuals at Look. some university, but it doesn't work out on the street. Quite the opposite. It's in the universities that it doesn't work, because all the leftist ideas and all the misrepresentation of capitalism come from leftist liberal professors. The universities, the universities are the real villains in the picture. Gee, I guess we're in a bit of trouble sitting here in the midst of this university environment, hey Robert? What she said is absolutely correct. The universities are at the root of a lot of our ills. Yes, and you know, what was stressed there was the total confusion between the power of a producer versus the power of physical force. Producers do not use physical force. They use the power of consent and of freedom to create wealth. The people who use physical force cannot create wealth. They can only do what they say, quote, distribute it, which is a fancy word for stealing. Because if you use force, you're not getting the consent of the other person. And to that degree, you're stealing. That's the definition of it. Now, before the break, we were talking about Ken Loenza in his interview yesterday. And just as Ayn Rand had just said how she defined, that Jimmy Carter defined how the oil companies were needed. They were a needed service. 
Here's what Ken Luenza said yesterday. He said, Caterpillar is going to continue to do a lot of business. Heavy equipment machinery is going to be needed in our oil sands, in our mining sectors, in our infrastructure, in our roads and sewers, and on and on he went. So this was a needed company. To each according to their the, need. Yes. And so, and then he goes on, he says, and I have business people call me and tell me, you know, this kind of conduct from a very, very profitable company is not conducive to Canadian values. What? What values is he talking about? And he says, and we're thinking twice about where we're going to buy our equipment. And I hope that becomes factual. So now they want to hurt the company that he just said was needed by all of us. <laughs> because the only thing that Caterpillar will understand, he says, is that if you destroy human beings and you destroy communities like London and you walk away with no consequences or no passion, then quite frankly, those that do business with Caterpillar will have to think different. Can you imagine that kind of thinking? I can't even go there. It's not thinking. If it's thinking, it's thinking with his glands. Yeah. And then, you know... And then uh, Andy tells this really bad joke about a business owner having no heart when the, when the doctor operates on him on the table or something like that, right? And I'm just thinking, this is just amazingly anti-capitalistic stuff. And then Lorenzo says, oh, your description is bang on. In Europe, for example, workers, quite frankly, had to hold the CEO hostage in his workplace to win some justice. Hmm, they had to, they had to do it, Robert. They had to hold the CEO hostage, physically hostage. Mm-hmm. He's going, I'm not suggesting that's something we'll do in Canada. Hmm. Then he says, and this is funny, but every place they go in the world, they leave a lasting terrible impression based on some business decisions that do not make sense. Next sentence. And I just remind everyone once again, a very profitable company. They could be very easy, easily reduce the pain on our members. So this company that's not making decisions that are based on business sense somehow is getting us profit from what? From being stupid? Uh, How stupid could he be to put those two sentences next to each other? We don't understand their stupid business decisions, but they keep ending up with all this profit. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. I sit there and I wonder, is this a two-year-old in the body of an adult? You know, I, I just wonder. And he says, he goes, eventually I would like to think that the Premier of Ontario, the Prime Minister of our country, would call Cat and say, you know, you're still going to do incredibly well based on the Canadian economy, and maybe it's in your interest to treat those citizens appropriately. And then he talks about occupying the plant. And this is one of their toolbox, tools in their toolbox, is occupation. That's, that's a union tool, it's, occupation. Uh, it's also called trespass. Yeah. And he says, and get this, The only power that workers have today is what's left in that facility. There's a few unfinished locomotives that they would like to obviously get completed and get to the customer, but there's also a lot of equipment, a lot of intellectual property that they would like to move to another site. So again, the only bargaining power that workers have today is that facility and what's in it. Well, didn't he just say in the paper two days before that what's in the facility and the facility belongs to the company? And he the did. Work he said he owns the labor, yeah. Right. Well, now he's lying again. <laughs> Nothing these people say can be believed for more than, oh, half of the time it takes them to finish the sentence. I have these people on record over and over and over again. You want to talk about people who aren't human? Are we allowed to do that? Is that what this is all coming down to? Because if I'm going to have to pick sides, I've picked my side. <laughs> you can, do I sound a little peeved about this, Robert? Just a tad. Yeah. 
Rightfully so. And then he says, and I hope we can get a collective agreement that reduces our pain, and on and on and on. I tell you, Robert, it's frustrating. Then I read this other article, second article, sorry, by uh, Andrew Coyne. Nasty as Caterpillar may be, that's the headline, it had something the community wanted, jobs. Hmm, what made them nasty, though? And then he writes, this is Andrew Coyne, February 3rd. Um, On the first day of the lockout, some 200 members of the Canadian auto workers were deployed to stop a van with three workers inside from gaining entry. After five hours in the bitter cold, they were allowed to pass. Sid Ryan, president of the Ontario Federation of Labour, vowed to mobilize workers from across the province to help CAW stop, quote, scabs from crossing their picket lines. Now, who are scabs, Robert? (laughs) Are those fellow union workers? No. Those are the competing workers, right? The people they say that they're doing all this for. That's what a scab is, is competing labor. Right. And then he writes, and this is great from Andrew Coyne's point of view, he says, All of this was discussed as if it were the most normal thing in the world. In the 21st century, to be resolving disputes by the use of hundreds of big heavy men to prevent or intimidate others from going about their lawful business, physical force, in other words. Of course it isn't normal. It is a privilege largely reserved for organized labor, sanctioned by history and police unwillingness to intervene. The same union leaders whose rejection of the company offered, uh, company's offer precipitated the lockout now say they knew this was the company's plan all along. So exactly what was the plan then? Caterpillar, moreover, is hardly struggling. The company recently announced a profit of $5 billion and is aggressively expanding production of locomotives in the United States, South America, and everywhere, that is, other than in Canada. Okay, so he writes, so, the company are bastards, greedy, heartless, call them what you will. As I say, this is not news. Well, this is where I have to stop, and I have to say to Andrew Coyne, it's news to me. Could you tell me about where these people proved that they were bastards, heartless, call them what I will? I won't call them that. You're calling them that. Give me a reason. I haven't heard a single thing that would suggest this. It's an irrational statement. Have you heard anything that would... That would that would justify no. any of these things? Because I've been looking. You know, and it does both morality and capitalism a great disservice. Shame on all these right-wingers that I keep hearing who keep expressing this kind of statement. They come out, just like the libertarians and conservatives, right? They come out, great defense on economic grounds. This is, it's all pragmatism, right? There's no principle involved in their discussions at all. Otherwise, you couldn't say something like that about the owners of a company who are making clearly rational decisions that are making that company profitable and creating jobs for thousands and thousands of people around the world. You know, keeping with the Atlas Shrug theme of this particular show, I have to wonder, I went through the book and and looked for parallels Mm. between the characters, which I'll get into later. But what struck me was that in Atlas Shrugged, the main characters which brought down industry, which brought down the United States, were businessmen. Yes. Were pro-business, supposedly, in name only. They were the conservatives. That's the main characters in Atlas Rug which destroyed the economy. And I think the same is being mm-hmm. done here. I agree. Now, of course, we've agreed and sort of determined that the root of all this is philosophical. And, you know, that means... 
to, to discover the proper cause, you have to know what philosophy is consistent with the laws of nature. So I really just wanted to summarize very quickly five quick points, five or so, five, maybe six, of the main reasons why companies are leaving and why Caterpillar left. I think the number one reason was a closed shop. I, said, I put it at number four before when I talked to you, Robert. But given the president's statement, I can't say it's number four now. He said it was number one. And this is a structural defect, which deprives the company of a ready pool of labor and which necessitates it leaving on principle. He has nothing else. It has no choice to regain some semblance of freedom of association in work jurisdictions that now have to resort to right-to-work laws, of all things, to, to, to resort to the right for people to work. Then, of course, number two is green energy and Dalton McGuinty or in other words, electricity prices in Ontario. Number three is green energy and Barack Obama. Because, do you know one of the reasons that, that the Americans are ordering all the locomotives in the States is because of green energy? They're refurbishing a lot of the existing ones so they have um, better emission standards and things oh, like that. Sorry. So that's part of where the work is coming from, and that doesn't sound too good either. And, of course, another one is the dollar on par, which has really hurt Canadian labor. And... Fifth and sixth, politicians and taxation. No question about those things. So, off to our next break again. We're going to join a debate here that occurred following the earlier piece we heard on Free to Choose with Milton Friedman. And this is amongst some union leaders, business people, and Milton Friedman himself. It's the free market system, Milton Friedman's been arguing, I think, not labor unions, which best protect the interests and serve the interests the worker. Walter Williams, your reaction? Well, uh, I think clearly uh, labor unions serve the best interests of uh, workers who happen to be members of uh, labor unions at the expense of workers who are excluded from being uh, members of labor unions. Well, we tried a free market system without labor unions. Uh, we tried it back in the 1920s and into the 30s, and it led the world into the biggest economic disaster it's ever seen in modern times. Now, I don't think we're talking free market or labor unions. We're talking free market with or without labor unions. And a free market system without labor unions is a total disaster. We're not telling anybody who they have to hire. We're not doing anything. <laughs> no. Let's raise the question, which certainly is dealt with in the film. Yeah. Have minimum wages, which is a form of government intervention, served the interests of the poor and indeed of the working class generally? Now, I know you've yep. spent a good deal of time looking at this. I'd like yes. you to come in on it, too. Okay, well, uh, if, at least from from standpoint of teenagers, particularly minority teenagers, uh, the minimum wage law has acted to destroy a number of employment opportunities. The youth of this country would be much worse off than they are today if we didn't have minimum okay, wage. Okay, now, now Bill Brady, you well, come on. Well, no, it's a uh, minimum wage. It's a good idea yeah, or not? Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a it's a bad idea. It is it is patently one one of the one of the worst things that can that we can do to our youth. We prevent them well, from. How many we, kids do you have? We, we what's that? How many kids do you have? I have two. It's not important how many people. Well, yeah, it is. Minimum wage you. doesn't affect his industry. His wages are far minimum above the minimum wage. Minimum wage doesn't affect a single one no. of his members. It what affects probably a tax people about how we're going to Hold it, hold it, hold it. We Milton have has not the floor. gone to support <laughs> minimum wage legislation <laughs> in this country. Gentlemen, hold it a moment. Hold it a moment. Hold it a moment now. Of course we have not. We are people's organization. The chairman has said the floor is Milton's. I was saying that there's not a single one, I suspect, of the, st uh, of the members of your union who is affected by the minimum wage fact, rate here much higher. You say that you are a public service organization. I say we're a people's organization. You're, a, you're an organization of your workers, and if you aren't representing the interests of your workers, they ought to fire you. And we're out. If you tell us 
that you are going against the interests of your workers, then you are simultaneously saying but, to your workers, oh, I'm not on. doing yeah, what you're hiring for. This, 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 this is pure sophistry. I'm it's not, not sophistry I, in the I am not talking, <laughs> I'm just I am not talking to... about representing the interests of our workers. Our union represents a lot of people. Right. And some it of does. the people are the ones that you're probably aware of, the people who work in big steel mills Absolutely. and all the rest of them. There's nothing in which we're more interested than having a busy, functioning economy. The question is how to bring that about. I do suggest, and I think, would, would, uh, I think can be defended as long as we want to discuss it, that the prosperity we have in America today, that the labor, movements have made an labor movement has made an enormous contribution to that, and in the absence of the labor movement, and in the absence of minimum wage, this would not be as prosperous a country as it is. Now, hold it that there. Is not to hold say it there, Lynn. I want to get a reaction to that. He stated the case uh, for what the union has achieved. Could we go around, first of all, do you accept any part of that? Yeah, you know, it's preposterous, you know, as I suggested before. I mean, if we, if we, if, you know, if minimum wages can make people richer. The unions we're talking about Well, now. if unions can make people yeah. richer, well, you have to just tell people in Bangladesh, why don't you unionize and demand a higher wage? You can be rich like the United States. We're telling them it's everywhere productivity. in the world. We told them in Japan. No, it, no, it worked. You know, workers then, have higher wages in our country because they're more productive. That's how you get higher wages. And, and this is just plain, I mean, it's nonsense. And why are they more productive? Huh? Because they have capital. Enormous and, capital oh, investment. Oh, no, right. yeah, and the highest wages are paid in the higher the capital intensive industry. And because there are consumers to buy the stuff who have wages which enable them to go into the marketplace and buy something. Without the, without all, the capital investment, they wouldn't have the wages. Money, there there would be, be no way of paying them without the capital investment. That's Ernest Green, what's the reply? I stand by my initial statement that it is a, a prerequisite of a democratic society to have trade unions, organizations allowing workers to band together in their mutual interest. And if, if, that, if that group, I'm saying that trade unions uh, like A. Philip Randolph, sleeping car porters, the, the Pullman car company would have never on its own given those workers who worked very hard, were very productive people, well-educated, any increase in their wages had it not been for the intervention of Randolph. The crucial issue is whether governmental measures which have the effect of favoring union organization, of giving them privileges and immunities that are not accorded to other organizations in the society, benefit the society as a whole or harm the society as a whole. The proposition I tried to make in this film was that the source of the prosperity of this country was freedom of enterprise, freedom of employers to hire, of workers to work for whom they wanted to, that insofar as unions had played a role, they had protected some workers at the expense of others and had retarded the prosperity of this country. I think that Lynn Williams' statements to the contrary cannot be supported by any empirical or other evidence that he has, understandably, I'm not blaming him for this, uh, he would be faithless to his job if he did not believe sincerely in what he's saying. I'm not questioning his sincerity. But sincerity is a much overrated virtue in our society. The plain fact is that there is no evidence whatsoever that either unions or minimum wages have made positive contributions to the prosperity of this country. You know, Bob, I've got some uh, notes that I want to bring up about what we just heard from that Free to Choose clip. But before I do, I went through um, some of Atlas Shrugged and found some of the characters and tried to find their 
uh, counterparts in this electromotive diesel dispute, and I, and I came up with about five of them. Um, some of the most notable ones would be uh, Fred Kinnan from the book, would be uh, perhaps Sid Ryan from the CAW, the uh, okay. union boss. Fred Kinnan was a labor leader, of course, and a member of what Rand called the Luther Cabal. <laughs> um, Mark's Work Warehouse here in London has stopped uh, supplying Caterpillar bootwear in so-called sympathy for the workers. And I found that particularly interesting. I would call them Horace Busby Moen, who was a businessman who sees nothing wrong with the moral code that is destroying society and would never dream of saying he's in business for any reason other than the good of society. Mm-hmm. Ben Neely from the book was somebody who said that he can get anything done with enough muscle power. He sees no role for intelligence and human achievement. That could be almost any hu- union member. And uh, Bertram Scudder, oh, this was my favorite. Bertram Scudder was an editorial writer in Atlas Shrugged, wrote for the magazine The Future. He typically bashes business and businessmen, but he never says anything specific in his articles, relying on innuendo, sneers, and denunciation. And that, undoubtedly, would be uh, Martin Reg Cohen of the Toronto Star. Congratulations, Martin. You are now Bertram Scudder from Atlas Shrugged <laughs> because I'll just tell you some of the words. You should start giving awards, maybe, based on these <laughs> Atlas names, Awards, eh? yeah. yeah. On February 4th, Martin Reg Cohen wrote in the Toronto Star, these words, and I'll just go through the words that he used to describe the conflict. What, oh, the I conflict, the by the way, there, yeah. <laughs> he called the London Massacre. Ooh. He called it, na- the, uh, he called Caterpillar nasty and brutish. Brute strength prevailed over civilized rules of conduct. Um, they call it humiliating, cunning caterpillar, cold-hearted tactics, the big bad Americans, his words, highway robbery, kick those workers in the teeth, and scavengers. Way to go, Bertram Scudder. And, of course, Dagny Taggart could very well be... Uh, that, that, that is pure Atlas shrug stuff. It really totally. is. It's right out of the book. <laughs> it's like Rand must have gone through newspapers. I have to tell you, after I read Atlas Shrugged, I never saw a newspaper the same. Of course not. And Dagny Taggart, of course, the uh, heroine in the book, would be Billy Ainsworth, probably president of the Progress Rail. I don't know the man. He keeps a low profile, but perhaps he would be Dagny Dagny Taggart. Anyway, back to that free-to-choose clip. Minimum wage wage laws that they were talking about earlier on in the clips are an example of Frederick Bastiat's That Which Is Seen and That Which Is Unseen essay. Taking money from one to give to another might enrich the second person, but robs the first person, and that first person is the one who would have been willing to do the job for less. High youth and immigration unemployment in this country is the direct consequence of minimum wage laws, amongst other government legislation. It's an, it is advocated by unions not to provide a so-called livable wage, but to restrict the job market to their members. And we ask the question, do we owe our standard of living to the labor movement? No, we don't. A young high school grad living at home doesn't care about so-called livable wages. He's looking for pocket money or savings so that he can move out or, or, or have job experience without which he wouldn't be able to get a job which pays higher wages. He's stuck in a system which has deliberately shut him out. As for the standard of living we enjoy, we enjoy it despite trade unions, not because of them. In fact, without the coercive monopoly given to unions, our standard of living would be much better than it is today. Then we, then we do owe our standard of living to trade unions. Yeah, the lower standard <laughs> of living. The lowering of it. The yeah. labor monopolies have driven up prices, reduced production, squandered and restricted capital investment, and scared off foreign investment. Thank you very much, trade unions. A high standard of living is a consequence of economic freedom, not unions. 
Things like a reduced work week or an eight-hour day were established in many sectors long before unions took hold of the labor market. Take, for example, Henry Ford, who, while most industries were paying 2 or $3 a day, he paid his work- workers $5 a day and in return had a very efficient and productive workforce. He did it to increase his profits, not because the government or union mandated it or threatened to shut him down if he didn't do it. Capital and productivity are responsible for an increased standard of living. That's it. A good article written which covers most of these points to substantiate this argument is by Nathaniel Brandon, published in the Objectivist Newsletter of November 63. And he uses this quote from Ludwig von Mises, quote, What is called the American way of life is the result of the fact that the United States has put fewer obstacles in the way of saving and capital accumulation than any other nation. And Brandon goes on to say, employers don't lower wages because they're cruel. No raise, no raise wages. Uh, they don't raise wages because they're kind. Wages are not determined by the employer's whim. Wages are the prices paid for human labor and, like all the prices in a free economy, are determined by the law of supply and demand. And let anyone who believes that a high standard of living, says Brandon, is the achievement of labor unions and government controls, ask himself the following question. If one had a time machine and transported the uh, United Labor Chieftains of America plus three million government bureaucrats back to the 10th century, would they be able to provide a medieval surf with electric light, refrigerators, automobiles, and television sets? When one one grasps that they would not, one should identify who and what made these things possible. And it's not the labor unions. And with that, Bob, why don't you take us out? That's it. We'll be back next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, you know what to do. Be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. See you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Then it was halftime. And halftime at the Super Bowl is the best. Because halftime at the Super Bowl has gotten exponentially worse every year. I use the word exponentially because I was taught it in the math class. And that's the first sentence I could use it in. Exponentially worse means crappier and crappier and crappier.